0: Welcome to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message.
1: So, uh, several years ago, God spoke directly to a man named Bob Hayfley. What exactly did God tell Bob Hayfley? Well, apparently, God told Bob Hayfley that he needed to go and build a life-size sculpture of Jesus in his garage out of toothpicks. Yes, toothpicks. Here's a quote. This is, this is what Hafley himself says. He says, I was in my work truck on Lone Hill and Seneca Avenues in San Dimas, wherever that is, when God told me to do it. I said, God, gee, I, I can't do that. You're asking me to undertake a task that will take 10 years. Uh, uh, Bob uh, eventually, I suppose, gets to a point of realizing that, that when God tells you to do something, you better do it. And so he gathers together some tweezers, he gathers together some glue, and he gathers together a lot of toothpicks. And by a lot, I mean over 250,000. And he gets to work on this, this sculpture that he later calls The Gift because God also told him to call it that. It's not the best photo, but, but here's the finished product. It's over six foot tall. As he anticipated, there's another photo that's a little better. As he anticipated, it took him several years to finish. Now, honestly, it's a little bit impressive. I I was looking at I was like, well, maybe God did tell him to do it. I don't know. (laughs) Whoa. Okay. Emily. (laughs) Whoops. Emily liked that one. Emily, why don't you stand up and bow for everybody? (laughs) At least someone in here likes my jokes, right? Good grief. Thank you for that, Emily. Okay, why am I showing you, why am I showing you a weird Jesus sculpture made out of toothpicks? Because I'm going out on a limb and I'm saying, I was thinking about this today, I'm guessing, I'm guessing that none of you came to college with any sort of aspiration, any sort of hope and dream that one day you'd be in your garage building Jesus sculptures out of toothpicks. Now, we for sure don't want Bob Hafley's life, if that's what it is, right? But, but wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if, like Bob Hafley, God would tell us exactly what to do with our lives? Wouldn't it be nice if, if God would just speak to us wherever we're at in a particular moment and tell us exactly what he wants us to do? I think we all want that, don't we? In fact, I know we do because that was the number one voted question for this sermon series. What's God's plan for my life? What does God want me to do? A few years ago, social psychologist Sheen Iyengar, she asked 100 American college students and 100 Japanese college students to take out a blank piece of paper. She gets them in a room. She says, take out a blank piece of paper. And on the front side of the blank piece of paper, she says, I want you to write down all the choices in your life that you want to make yourself. All the choices in your life that you want to make yourself. And then on the back side of the paper, uh, she has them write down all the choices in their life that they would prefer someone else to make. So on the front, it's the choices they want to make. On the back, it's the choice they want someone else to make. And what she found I thought was really interesting. She found that that the American college students, the American college students wanted to choose for themselves more than four times. They wanted the choice more than four times of, of the Japanese students. American college students wanted to choose more than four times for themselves things happening in their lives. David Brooks, he's a writer for the New York Times, he's an op-ed columnist, he's an author, he's done all sorts of things. About this research, he's talking, he's, he says this, he says, you know, Americans, and we know this too, right, we've always put this great emphasis on individual choice, right? Individual choice is very important to us as Americans, but, but he goes on to say, even by our own standards, Over the last 30 years or so, we've had what what he calls a choice explosion. And he goes on to say that that Americans now have more choices over more things than any other culture in human history. He calls that a choice explosion. Now, I think you guys probably feel that. The choices that you all have just in college alone, they, they seem unending, don't they? What should we major in? Should we go to grad school? Where should we live? What should we do over the summer? Who should we date? Should we get married? Who should we get married to? Who are our friends gonna be? What job should we take? What city should we move to? Where should we go to church? Should we volunteer? If so, where should we volunteer? Should we go to church? What do we do with our time? What do we do with our money? On and on and on. That's just scratching the surface, isn't it? Think about all the choices in your life. And, and, you know, to be honest, if you're like me, on the one hand, those choices, those possibilities, those opportunities, they're really exciting. But on the other, they bring confusion and anxiety and uncertainty. See, because it's not that that we have a lot of choices. It's not just that there are a lot of choices for us. It's It's that sometimes those choices that we have to make, they're really hard. They're difficult. And so we're left torn. Is, is this right or, or is that right? Should I, should I do this or, or, or should I do that? And, and in the midst of those decisions, we become paralyzed by indecision, actually. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? Like we fight for the, the freedom to have choice, but we're paralyzed by actually having to choose. Having individual choice matters to us, but we're paralyzed with anxiety and confusion and doubt by actually having to make a decision. And I think adding, if I'm honest, adding to our confusion sometimes are are, are Bible verses like Jeremiah 29 11. Maybe you're familiar with it. This is what it says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now, I know that some of you know that verse. You've, you've read it, you've memorized it, you think a lot about it, you get hope and encouragement from it. But I know some of you have, have come across that verse or maybe someone has said it to you and, and you're frustrated by it. Maybe even you're angered at God by it. If God has this great plan for our lives, you think, then why doesn't he just tell me what it is? If God has some wonderful plan for our life, then why don't we know what that plan is? I think it's a fair question. I get it, I've wrestled with the same myself. But I'll say this, I think there's a problem with it too. See, I think that when we ask that question, God, what do you want me to do with my life? I think what we're really asking is for God to reveal to us some sort of secret plan, some sort of specific secret plan for the who, what, where, when, how of our lives. As if it's some sort of secret that, that we have to figure out before we do anything as if it's some sort of secret that that we have to actually figure out before we make a choice, before we make a decision. Like God's good plan for our lives, it's hiding behind door one, two, or three, and if we guess wrong, well, then we miss it. We miss out. I I for sure used to think like that. I've shared uh, in this context before if you know me, you know this is true too. When I was in college, I was a uh, civil engineering undergrad major. Uh, I came into Mizzou. I, I knew that I wanted to go in, into engineering. I loved my classes. I had great internship opportunities. I, I went into my senior year with, with a few different job opportunities. And so, you know, I didn't have the stress of where am I going to work, what am I going to do, uh, because I knew exactly where I was headed. And then some of you are stressed right now because that's not you, Uh And then two months before I graduated, I graduated December 2007, two months before I graduated, a pastor at the Crossing, a church in town, he was also uh, the the co-director of Veritas, helped start Veritas on campus, he sat me down and he said, hey, Kyle, have you ever thought about vocational ministry? I literally laughed at him and then said, of course not. Of course not. Why would I think about vocational ministry, Ryan? I'm, I'm, I'm going back to Kansas City. I'm going to work for Burns and Mac. I'm going to make a ton of money. I got a boat. I'm going to have a house. I'm going to do all this stuff, right? And I moved on. I, I literally was like, we don't need to talk. I'm, I'm kind of over it. I went home, and I went to bed, and I, I, I woke up the next morning, and that question was still there. What about vocational ministry? I started thinking more and more about it. I, I started wondering, okay, why did he ask me that? What? What does that mean? Should I think about it? And I did. And a day went by and a day went by and I asked a friend, I asked more friends, I asked family, started asking people that knew me. And for the next six weeks, literally the next six weeks were the most miserable six weeks of my entire college career. Why? Because I increasingly felt this pressure. I increasingly felt this pressure to make the right choice. As if one of these choices was pleasing to God, either engineering or Veritas, and one wasn't. As if one of those choices was faithful to God and, and one of them wasn't. As if one was right and one was wrong. And I, I'll be honest, I had no idea how to choose. And so I just became frustrated. I became anxious, confused. I, I, honestly, I was miserable. I, I literally remember praying, God, just tell me what to do. I don't care what it is. You can literally tell me anything at this point. I just want you to tell me something to do and I'll go do it. But he didn't tell me. He didn't tell me what to do. See, I, I think a lot of us, I think a lot of us fear that if we make the wrong choice, if we pick the wrong major, if we date the wrong person, we take the wrong job, we move to the wrong city, if we choose wrongly, well, then we've blown it. We've blown it. We'll miss God's good plan for our lives. Here's what I've been learning over the last, I don't know, 10 or so years. Yes, yes, God has a specific plan for your life. God has a specific plan for my life. God's in control of all things. God knows all things. Take Psalm 139, for instance. This is what King David says. He says, your eyes, God, saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Before one of them came to be, you knew, God. See, the same thing's true for us. God knows all things. God is in control of all things. He has a specific plan for our lives. And yet, and yet, and this is what I've had to learn over time, nowhere, nowhere does the Bible say that God's specific plan for our lives is something that you and I have to figure out before we make a decision. Nowhere does the Bible say that God's plan for our lives is something that we have to figure out. Before we actually do something Now what I'm not saying is that God doesn't care about your future. Of course He does. I'm not saying that God isn't going to direct you in the choices that, that lie before you. Of course, He will. But, but what I'm trying to help us think about, what I'm trying to help us see, what I'm trying to help us realize, is that is that our obsession if that is a word that we can maybe use, our obsession with trying to figure out God's specific plan for our lives, I think it's misguided. And I think more often than not, it's going to leave us paralyzed, it's going to leave us confused, it's going to leave us disappointed because we want God to tell us what he wants us to do, and he's not doing it. See, Jesus doesn't tell us the specifics. Jesus doesn't give you and I the specifics, but he does give us his plan. He does give us his plan. He tells us what he wants from us. Matthew 6, picking up in verse 25. Jesus is speaking. This is part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus says. It's a little bit long. Bear with me. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. There's not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink. Don't worry about your body, what you'll wear. Don't worry. And why does he say that? How can Jesus stand up in front of us, in front of people and say, don't worry? Because he knows he's in control. Because he knows he's in control. He knows what you and I need. And he knows that God is going to provide accordingly. Now, now, what you and I think we need is sometimes different. We need to admit that. Sometimes it's different than, than what God thinks we need. But Jesus knows what you and I need, and he knows that God is going to provide accordingly. And so he says that worrying and obsessing and fretting over our future, it's not going to add a single hour to our lives. In other words, our fixation our fixation on the specifics of God's plan for our lives, it's not getting us anywhere. It doesn't get us anywhere. Instead, Jesus says there's a better way. There's a better way. And that better way, he says, is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, what Jesus is saying is is that Jesus' main concern for our lives, Jesus' main concern for your life or my life is that we would make his kingdom and his way of life our top priority that's what's God's plan for your life that you and I would seek first his kingdom now if that's what God wants then the obvious question is well how do we do that I'll I'll be honest I had all sorts of things that I wanted to say and then this morning I looked at Austin I said I got to cut it all so we're just gonna talk about two things and Lily kind of teased them already which is good Two things, two primary ways that we make God's kingdom his way of life, our way of life. And the first is this, that seeking God's kingdom means learning to love Jesus. Seeking God's kingdom means learning to love Jesus. I know it sounds obvious. Some of us know Jesus, but we don't love him. We know a lot about Jesus. We've been around Jesus. We've grown up with Jesus. But we don't actually love him. In the Old Testament, uh, when Israel was preparing, they, they'd gotten out of slavery in Egypt, and, and God had promised them land, the promised land, when they're preparing to enter into it. One of their, one of their leaders, Moses, he stands up in front of the people, and, and he says to all of them, he says this, Deuteronomy 6, picking up in verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Stands up in front of all of God's people, says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Fast forward to the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking to some people, some religious leaders come up to him, they start asking questions. And one guy in particular, he says, Hey Jesus, what's the most important thing in the Bible? What's the most important commandment in the Bible? This is what Jesus says, picking up verse thirty-seven, Matthew twenty-two. Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. See, what what Jesus is saying is that seeking God's kingdom in his ways means loving him, not just with our heads, but with our hearts and with our strength, and with all of who we are. Now what does that mean? Well I think to love God to love Jesus it means a lot but but here's something at least at least part of what it means to love Jesus John 14 verse 21 Jesus says whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me The one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them If you've been around Veritas uh, very long at all, you know that, that we try not to shy away from hard truths that the Bible teaches. This is a hard truth. This is a hard truth. Loving Jesus means obeying Jesus. In other words, you can't love Jesus without obeying him. You can't love Jesus without obeying him. Maybe you've seen uh, or at least heard about the interview that Justin Bieber has recently done with Zane Lowe on Apple Music. Uh, I I, I Honestly, I know little about Bieber's faith, but I was watching the interview and and I think it's pretty interesting. I think he says some pretty insightful things. Uh, I actually wanna watch kind of a four-minute highlight clip. It was a longer interview, but I wanna watch a four-minute highlight clip uh, because I think what he says is pretty insightful, right? So pay attention. Pay attention particularly to what what he says about what he thinks it means to follow Jesus, what he thinks it means to love Jesus. Let's watch.
2: I just didn't know what the heck was going on. And so I really took a deep dive in my faith, to be honest. I just went deep into like, I believed in Jesus, but I never really like, you know, when it says following Jesus is actually turning away from sin. Mm -hmm. And so there's no, what, what it talks about in the Bible, it's like, there's no obedience there's no faith without obedience. So it's like, I had faith about like, oh, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, but I never really implemented it Mm. into my life. I never like was like,
1: I'm gonna be obedient. So when did you decide to actually move within the guidelines and how did you find yourself away from, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm gonna drink or do drugs or sleep around or what all these other distractions. How did you get out of that world? What was the turning point for you?
2: I think it was my perception of who Jesus really was, you know? I'd had really bad examples of Christians in my life uh, who would say one thing and do another. So they were the, my direct example of who Jesus was. That's why you didn't take it seriously. I didn't take it as seriously because I didn't have good examples. Good role models. So they, Yeah. The way I look at my relationship with God and with Jesus is I'm not trying to earn God's love by doing good things. God has already loved me for who I am before I did anything to earn and deserve it. It's a free gift by accepting Jesus and just giving your life to him. And what he did is the gift. The forgiveness is the thing that we look at Him. you know, I'm going to worship you, God, because you gave me something so good.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think that if you hadn't redefined what Jesus was and reclaimed it into something that was worthy of practice for you, mm-hmm. which then led you on a path of reconciliation with your wife,
2: mm-hmm.
1: do you think the person that, you, the you of then was on a path of self-destruction. Do you feel that you
2: were on a you were self-destructing? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I would have for sure, 100%. Yeah. I don't know if I'd be alive for sure. It was dark, really dark. So I'm very, very grateful to have influences in my life that have played a huge part in me seeing their relationship with Jesus. And their relationship with their wives, and their relationship with their kids, and saying that's what I want, mm. and um, striving after that. So, Jesus wasn't this religious elite guy that you know came to, um, but he was—he was in the dirt, and uh, he found me in my dirt and pulled me out. Like I said before, I'm—I'm I'm a Jesus follower, and uh, I just want to be led by. When you accept Jesus, he says that now you walk with the holy spirit so i think i just want to be led by by the holy spirit we're not really good at the end of the day at the core i don't believe i don't believe humans are good and people might you know twist this and make me seem like i'm saying humanity's not good t-treat i don't know i just feel like at the core i fight every day temptation and things that you know are instinctive to do whether it's you know whatever it is lie be greedy all these things that just naturally come those naturally come i gotta fight to not be that so maybe humanity's you know it's it's come to a place of being really you know it's it's broken i mean it's just just look around i mean the pain in this world it's just so it's like it's obvious and uh people are looking for hope and they're looking for a way out and they're looking for an escape and they're looking for um they're looking for truth and they're looking for um yeah and i'm just uh i've gotten the opportunity um with my journey to just see a god who's accepts me loves me um they call him the savior um and i believe that to be true mm-hmm. that jesus saved me
1: pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, I'll be the first to admit that that I have no doubt, I have absolutely no doubt that Justin Bieber struggles with sin. I have no doubt that Justin Bieber's life isn't perfect, that he's very much in process in his faith, which, by the way, so am I. And in showing that video, the point is not to make him some poster child of Christianity, to make him some model of what Christianity is or isn't, but because Jesus can only fill those shoes. But man, he says some stuff in that interview that's pretty insightful. Uh, He says following Jesus. Following Jesus means turning away from our sin. Now that might sound obvious, but sometimes I think we forget that. He says there's no faith in Jesus without obedience to him. Then toward the end, he, he says, you know, I'm not... I'm not trying to earn God's love by doing good things. No, I worship God. I live for God. I follow God. I love Jesus because what he did on the cross, what he did in his resurrection was so good. See, see learning to love Jesus, I say learning because it's a process for all of us. Learning to love Jesus means learning to obey Jesus, not just the things that come easy, not just the commands that Jesus says that, that seem convenient. No, Jesus says all of them, all of them, and, and Jesus takes our sin very seriously. Genesis 4, 7, first book of the Bible, personifies sin. This is what it says about sin. It says sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. It's looking to devour you. It desires you. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. You must turn from it. You must fight sin. John Owen, he's a a, a Puritan pastor. He's long gone at this point. Uh, He said it like this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Ask yourself, are you killing sin in your life? Are you killing sin in your life? Are you fighting sin? Are you turning from sin? Or is it killing you? Or is it killing you? See, seeking God's kingdom, it means loving Jesus, and loving Jesus means turning away from sin. And so what, what sins, sin, maybe sins, what, what sins in your life do you need to turn from? What ways are you struggling to obey God? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Maybe tell a friend. Ask for help. Be there for one another. Because Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, that is the one who loves me. So making Jesus' way of life, seeking God's kingdom first, it means learning to love Jesus. But it also means, second thing, means learning to love each other, learning to love others. See, our love for Jesus, it should result in our love for his people. Jesus says the first commandment, the greatest commandment, is that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second, Matthew 22, picking up in 39, the second is like it, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Second most important command, love your neighbor, love each other as yourself. What does that look like? Lots of things we could say. Here's some Bible verses. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Romans 15, seven, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. See, notice what none of those verses say. Notice that none of them say love others when it's convenient. Notice that none of them say love others when you aren't busy. None of those verses say to love others when it's easy. Love others when, when those people that you're trying to love are like you, when they like the same things as you. None of those verses tell us to love other people when we can get something from them. No, I don't say any of that. But sometimes, isn't that what we're tempted to do? We're tempted to love people when we can get something out of it. We, we, we treat our love for each other as, as conditional, it's as transactional. And Jesus steps right into that and he challenges it. He challenges me, he challenges you, he challenges us to, to be a group of people to, to sacrifice for each other, to, to serve for each other, to, to carry each other's burdens, to, to be present with one another. Man, how hard is it to be present with each other now? To honor each other, to be kind and compassionate towards each other, to forgive each other. All of those things, even when it's hard, why? Because that's what Jesus has done. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus will do for every single one of us. John 13, 34, Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Who in your life is God urging you to love? Who in your life is God urging you to love, to serve, to honor Who in your life is God urging you to forgive? That's hard, isn't it? Who do you need to text? Who do you need to grab coffee with? Who do you need to apologize to? What's holding you back? What's preventing you from doing those things? See notice that Jesus says our love for each other it's not about us and it's not about the other person it's actually uh, far more than that. He says by loving each other everyone will know that we're his disciples. So when we love each other a watching world sees who Jesus is. That's why your love for each other matters. People are watching. What do these Christians how do they live? How do they love? Imagine for a second Imagine with me for a second what influence that we'd have on campus, that you'd have on campus, in Columbia, if these things were increasingly true of us, increasingly true of you. Imagine for a second what your life would be like, the difference that it would make if you were increasingly someone that was learning to love God, learning to love Jesus, increasingly someone that was learning to love others. Not instantly, not overnight, but in time, in process, right? Someone that's growing, someone that's more and more wanting to seek God's kingdom first, more and more wanting to make Jesus' way of life our way of life. That's what God wants. That's what God's plan for your life is. See, I wonder how our lives would change. I wonder what difference it would make if you and I were more concerned with loving God and loving others than we were with who to date and how to spend our time and what job and what city to go to. Those things are important, absolutely important. But I wonder what difference it would make in our life if we were more concerned with loving God and loving others in those choices. I realize that for some of you, that's not the answer to this question that you wanted. You want specifics, you want details, you want to know how exactly you're supposed to make these choices to to get to God's plan for your life. And I'd love to talk about that. We don't really have time to get into it too much, but, but I'll say this. I'll say just a, re- a couple quick things here at the end. We need to know that the Bible simply doesn't address every decision, every choice, every opportunity that we have. It doesn't. It doesn't address all these things. And so when it doesn't, and we're faced with those decisions, what do we do? A couple things. Not rocket science. First, search the scriptures. What do I mean by that? Read the Bible, not for specifics, not for specifics, but for wisdom. So we read the Bible, we memorize it, we reflect on it, and in doing so, God's thoughts actually become our thoughts, day by day by day by day. His desires become our desires. His ways become our ways. See, in the Bible, God gives you wisdom. God gives me wisdom so that we can make good decisions. And so search the scriptures you might not find a specific answer, but you're going to find wisdom. Second, seek godly counsel. Again, kind of no-brainer, right? In order to make wise decisions, we need the advice. We need the counsel of other Christians. Proverbs 12:15. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. And so find a friend. Find a family member. Find someone that you trust, that knows you well, that believes the same things that you do. What do they think? about that decision that you're wrestling with, the choice that you have to make, the opportunity that you have. Here's another thing. Allow yourself to be challenged. Go into that conversation being teachable. Be willing to change your mind. Humble yourself. Also know that you're not always gonna make everyone happy. But search the scriptures. Ask for godly counsel. And then thirdly, and maybe I should have said this first, pray. Pray about it. Ask God for wisdom, ask God for clarity, ask that God, the choice that you make would honor him, that it would bring him glory. And then finally, just do something, right? Make a choice, make a decision, choose. See, for me, what what finally I, I, I just got to realize is that God's not going to tell me if I should do Veritas or if I should go into engineering. God wasn't gonna give me the specifics. God just wanted me to make a choice and be faithful to him in what I chose, and so some of you are wrestling with, is it this, is it that? And and frankly, I don't know. I probably could have gone in engineering and loved Jesus and served him and, and glorified him and, and all of those things, and all of that would have been true. It wouldn't have been wrong. But I came on staff and I love what I do, and I hope that it's honoring to God. And so just make a choice and be faithful to him. As the music team comes up, here's how one pastor. Uh, He sums all of this up. He's got a great little book. You should read it if you're interested in these things called Just Do Something. His name's Kevin DeYoung. He says this. He says, the end of the matter is this. You wanna know what God wants for your life? This is what it is. Live for God. Obey the scriptures. Think of others before yourselves. Be holy. Love Jesus. And as you do these things, do whatever else you like. With whomever you like, wherever you like, and you'll be walking in the will of God. As we close tonight, if you wouldn't mind, just, just close your eyes for a second, bow your heads. I want to close, I just want to read two verses from Psalm 25. And I want you and I want, I want us together, I want this to be our prayer. This is what it says, Psalm 25, four and five. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me for you are God, my Savior, My hope is in you all day long. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, Check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.